Hi, everybody. Today, I'm really excited to, uh, to introduce our new guest. Uh, I heard him speak on other podcasts actually before approaching him. Uh, and what really interested me is, is not only does he have uh, a lot of knowledge and very good things to say, but he's also been in a lot of different shoes. He's been a co-founder of a company. He's been director of marketing. He's been inside, uh, an inside sales advisor, and he's been VP and director of sales. So he's been all walks of life in the, the realm of a startup, and he knows really knows his stuff. So today we're going to be speaking with Mark Smith, and we're going to be speaking about how to determine if inside sales is right for your company, what sales leaders look for when joining a new company, and uh, a case for not having FCRs uh, and having full cycle account executives instead. So it's a really good action-packed uh, episode. Before we jump in the episode today, I'm really excited to share with you guys that we've opened up new, two new mastermind groups. And so one of them is a sales skill mastermind uh, where we talk about things that happen in a sales cycle if uh, an objection is raised or you get stuck with a with a prospect and how to move forward. Uh, the other one is for founders only. And this is how to build the infrastructure and how to hire, how to build the strategy or go to market. Uh, so these are the two different kind of masterminds that we put together. Uh, they're weekly calls uh, and it's gonna be packed full of information and we're gonna share ideas with each other. It's really nice. Uh, the founder sales is gonna be limited to five people, five participants uh, for each meeting. And the sales skill is gonna be limited to eight people. So if you're interested in uh, hearing more about that or, or joining this, you could go to startupsales.io backslash mastermind. That's startupsales.io backslash mastermind. Anyways, let's get going with today's episode with Mark Smith. Really hope you all enjoy it and you're getting a lot of value from it. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Great, Mark. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Adam. So uh, I'm going to kind of intro you a little bit uh, because you have... From looking at your LinkedIn and, and seeing what you've done, accomplished quite a bit. So you've done about a billion dollars in sales in your career. You're, wow. yeah, you're the Forbes, you're in Forbes Business Development Council. You were the president uh, for Inside Sales Advisors for three years. You founded your own, your own company. You were the director of marketing before. You've been VP sales of about six companies. Uh, <laughs> a huge long list of, of of things is there anything i missed uh no it sounds a lot more interesting than it really is but i think that covers it <laughs> all right well from all this experience uh let's just jump into it what what's your secret sauce for a startup to succeed with sales oh gosh that's a that's a good first question uh it's maybe the, the most important <laughs> so, I talk, so i talk i talk with a lot of startup companies and these can be seed rounds. These can be series A. These can be people who call me and say, I'm really rich and I want to start such and such company and I want to recruit you. And I usually walk them through the same exercise. The first thing we do is we just go to a spreadsheet. Now, I know that seems really glib, but you'd be shocked how many startups or people who are trying to get inside sales going as a startup within an established company, which is you know really common, you'd be surprised with how many of them have not done a proper model. And so the first thing that we do is we just sit down. That's what I do at Inside Sales Advisors. These are very short-term consulting gigs where you know, I, don't, I have a normal job. I don't want to be at a company consulting for months. These are you know, several hours of, of consulting, not, not weeks or months. And we sit down and we look at just the basics of their model. 
you know, their total addressable market, what they can sell their product for, what kind of LTV they should expect over 24 or 36 months. And we determine whether or not they have a viable business. It is, uh, it's interesting that so many of them in that first couple hours realize, okay, this may not be the opportunity that I thought. Now, that's not always the case. But then we look to determine whether they have a truly scalable business for inside sales. And there's a couple things that you absolutely have to have in order to have a viable inside sales department, either as a startup or within an existing company. So for instance, uh, Pinnacle Security, DevCon Security, uh, you know, Vivid Solar, these were established companies with door-to-door and with retail. But they wanted to start inside sales. So you have to treat it as a startup. The first thing is you have to have a, a viable way to contact your addressable market. Again, it sounds simple, but when you break it down, you really have to look and see whether, even if your market is potentially in the billions of dollars, can you actually get on the phone with them? Obviously, you can go knock on doors if you are selling residential home security systems. It's a totally different thing if you're using the telephone. Now, fortunately, in that world, you can purchase right now 25 to 30,000 really solid home security leads uh, that will have conversion rates in the 10 to 25% range. So it's a very viable way to do inside sales. On the other hand, you might have a, a leading edge type of product and you think to yourself, well, everybody's going to want this. And my, my market is, you know, every home in America. Well, you might need to go and check how many people are searching for that product. If the answer is tons, well, then you're in business. If the answer is not that many people, well, you're going you're gonna to need to think of another way to go to market, whether it's direct mail or cold calling. So that's really the first thing. Is, is, is this even viable that you could get people on the phone to speak with you about your product? But how do you know how many people is enough? Well, th- that just goes back to the model. So let's say, for instance, that you are selling you know, XYZ widget. And you think, okay, this, this could go in every bathroom in every home in America. And you think, okay, cool. Sounds good. And you can price it well and you can make a nice profit margin. Awesome. Well, that doesn't mean you have a viable business. Question is, how would you actually get it in the bathrooms of every, of every customer? If it's a brand new product that no one's ever heard of, well, no one's searching for it. So you're not going to be able to go do paid search. So then you're thinking, okay, then I need to go retail or I need to go whatever it may be. But no matter what business you're starting, you have to determine whether or not your audience is even accessible and at what cost it is to, uh, to access that audience. Um, that's why. For all of the new progressive approaches to sales, whether it's social selling or you name it, there's something about you know cold calling and knocking on doors that is still incredibly reliable. It may take a ton of effort, but you know, okay, I can I can call homeowners, I can knock on their doors, and so so that's really the first thing. And you'd be surprised how often somebody has a really great idea, but has a really tough time. Describing to you how they would distribute that product. So even if you have the ability to sell in retail, you know, do you have the margin to where that'll work? If you can do paid search, do you have the margins in your product where you can make that back out? If the answer is yes, it's sort of not that hard to determine what kind of uh, staffing you need and what kind of approaches you need to do it. Um, the second thing is you've got to realize that. Whatever is sold over the phone needs to be serviced similarly. So if you're selling uh, whatever diet pills and the sale is as simple as they say they want diet pills, you place the order and it ships out. That's easy. Not a problem at all. Now, if you're selling something like, say, home solar systems, now we're talking a different animal. You may be able to sell that on the first phone call. You may be able to get a contract signed. But in that industry, it could take three to four months to be installed. So the second thing you have to have in inside sales is a way to keep your customers warm 
and nourished between the yes and between the fulfillment of that order. In software, it can be the onboarding. It can be the, the, the point at which the contract starts, whatever it may be. But if you don't have a strategy to go from yes to a fully onboarded, fully integrated customer, whether it's a, a hard good or a software, then what you're going to do is you're going to drop out a ton of your potential revenue and therefore drive up your CAC um, just in the, in the sales process itself. So you know, you've got to make sure you can resource those things. And then the third thing really is, do you have the capital? Um, again, <laughs> if, if, you, if you develop a product and you can get it into Home Depot, that's awesome. You probably just need some inventory, right? Or if you're selling something door-to-door, put people on 1099 and get them knocking. Inside sales, a little different. So we show them in the model that you know, if you want to get started, you have to have a phone system, typically a dialer. You need to pay probably some salaries or hourly wages. Um, if you are already an established company, you're certainly going to have all the other stuff like benefits that add about you know, 18 to 21% to the cost. You're going to need to purchase your leads and you're going to need to make all of those purchases before you make your first sale. And in some cases, it's not terribly expensive to do it. In other cases, it's incredibly expensive. It's not to say you shouldn't do it. It's just to say that, you know, if, if right now uh, anybody listening is being approached by a startup to decide whether or not they're going to come be their head of sales. There's a couple of things that I would, de- I would personally demand. And one of them is, is proof of budget and some sort of commitment on what the company is willing to invest in getting the project started. I've been super fortunate that everyone that I've worked with has truly wanted to make the investment. But, you know, my guess is of all your listeners, there's, you know, quite a few of your listeners who will say, man, I've got a horror story where someone said they really wanted to do inside sales. And uh, we were running lean and mean, yet before we made our first sale, you know, we spent X amount of dollars and the person freaked out and kind of wanted to pull back. So you've, you've got to really commit to inside sales. And going back to the original, if you have a solid model and you've done some rigorous testing of that model, and then you know what? Um, you've probably got a viable business. Cool. And so where do you suggest that like a, if you're a new startup, uh, you run through that and you find that you have a viable business, how, how do you start? Do you, do you just jump right into it and hire five, a team of five and a leader? Or what, what have you found to be the right way to take it to the next step? Good question. I think the first thing you would do is, you know, depending on the size of the startup, but if, if it's you and you know, five or six other co-founders or whatever it may be, first thing you should do is get on the phone and try to sell it yourself. Now, I understand that there are a lot of co-founders or founders that are not you know, born salespeople. That, that's fine. Um, however, I think getting a pulse for what your target market um, has to, to say about your product and your service is super important so that you can internalize the value. You can make certain changes. And you can have some good expectations of what the market actually thinks. You know, so often we make these grand assumptions about what people are going to want before we actually just go ask them. And then when we go ask them, they say, that sounds great. Like, that's an amazing product, but I, but I wouldn't pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> you think, dang it. You know, and that, you know, that's why there's, there's so much survivorship bias, right? Where a founder says, listen, I talked to all my family and all my friends. And they <laughs> love it. <laughs> you say, oh, okay, that's, that's fine. Um, but you also, I mean, listen, you also, I don't want to go on a, like on a tangent, but you also see this with investors. You know, investors will, will say, you know, I just put money into this great startup. I'll say, oh, you know, cool. Why? Well, their product is great. And, you know, their revenue has been, has been fantastic to start with. I say, uh, awesome. Um, how many salespeople? Oh, they've got these, this scrappy head of business development. Okay, how many of those sales were made to uh, that person's LinkedIn network or that person's, you know, uncle's network? And then investors start looking at you like, you know, why are you asking? Well, because most of us, when we're starting something out, we will attempt to go to our own network. And that is going to be, you know, a super high conversion. A lot of people are going to take that risk and, and kind of jump in with us. 
But I always tell startup investors, before you go invest money in a seed round, question where those sales came from. Because if those sales were made only off of referrals or that person's network, and they, they have shown no proof that they can actually go create a lead from scratch and sell that lead, that's, a, that's an entirely different ball. And we see a lot of investments go bad because they jumped on a revenue number without understanding that that revenue was, was based on a cherry-picked sale. Nothing wrong with that, but it's certainly not something that's scalable unless you turn over heads of business development you know, seven times a year and every one of them has this great network. <laughs> well, hey, why not? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> All right. So let's say that you've you've got um you've got your team set up, you've got some salespeople. I I heard on uh one of your interviews, uh previous interviews, that you talk about streamlining the process and not having you know a, a big trend right now is for for companies to have an SDR to make the intro call and set the meeting for the account executive. And you were talking about streamlining that and not having the separate uh, salespeople. Is that correct? It is correct. Although I, you know, I don't want that to be a blanket statement. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it really is situational, which I know is a cop-out answer. But I would say more often than not, certainly in software sales, software companies are like grossly overusing sales development. Now, at Wampley, we also do software sales, but our market is small business. Our tickets a little bit are a little bit less than your typical, you know, mid-market uh, software package, and so we do use sales development in order to like rapidly accelerate the number of of demos that we can do in a short period of time. Um, you know, we're we're generating you know well over a hundred demos a day of our product through sales development, but that is you know that's short term. I'm not saying that we would get rid of our sales development reps. But as we go along, we want our account executives to be able to generate their own business. Um, number one, they can keep a much larger, larger piece of the commission. They can control the qualifications of the lead. But it actually builds a real skill. Now, in other companies that I advise or you know, consult with, almost all of the time, I'm telling them that they need to stop with the SDRAE model, especially if, um, you know, if the value of their sale is you know, north of $10,000. The reason for this is it isn't more efficient. It weakens the account executives and it really bothers the customer. Now you'll see studies that show that having a second voice in a sale makes conversion go up. But those studies don't show that most of the time that second voice is something like a technical integrator. You know, somebody who's going to be on the phone to talk about the integration part of it. Nobody wants to talk to multiple salespeople. This happens to me on a weekly basis. So it just happened this, this last week. This great SDR has been contacting me for a month or two and finally gave a compelling enough um, pitch as to why I should give them some time. And so I did. And, and I could have bet you 100 bucks that that SDR wasn't going to be the person on the call. <laughs> yeah. So sure enough, I get on the call and I said, you know, I said, hi, this is so-and-so. I said, um, who are you? I'm not trying to be rude, but why am I talking to you? Oh, well, that was just the SDR. I'm the AE. Well, just the SDR just did two months of work. Just yeah. the SDR convinced me that I should take a half an hour of my day. Just the SDR learned a lot about my business. So now I have to restart with you. I have to go down the whole dog and pony show of, I want to learn a little bit more about your business. Well, of course you do. You're brand new to this, this process. You have to learn more. Your SDR already has all of the relationship with me. So I just don't, I'm, I'm not convinced that an SDR who can get a VP of sales on the phone after working it for two months, I'm not convinced that SDR needs any help closing that deal. Um, and if they do, then teach them. Just teach them how to close the deal. Um, so, anyways, I, I, you know, I can get off on a rant about that a lot. But when you know, when I took over at Wampley, we had like 
you know, 50 SDRs. And I think we had 40 account executives or whatever it was. And within three months, we had only account executives and our sales tripled. Wow. Uh, so that might be a bit of an outlier, but um, I, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. I think most of the time, if you... Uh, the SDR should be taught to close their own deals or frankly, an account executive should be taught how to originate their own deals. I don't know why becoming an account executive means that all of a sudden you should just be spoon fed, but, <laughs> but, that, but that's just, that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I, I agree with you completely. I love, uh, when I'm doing the sale, it's, I want to be in control of the whole process because it, it, it sets me up. It puts me in that relationship with the buyer. It helps me with the negotiation down the road. It helps me understand the flow and, and where the standing, where everything stands. So I definitely love the idea of being full cycle sales. But at the same time, you know, when 80% of my time is spent on, uh, SDR work, uh, when I could be spent negotiating, closing and, and going the next step from there, it's, it's a, it's a tough call. So you, you're saying that the number is about a thousand dollars a month or were you saying 10,000 monthly? No, I would say that, I mean, unless you have an incredibly niche product, if, if, if your price of a contract is worth $10,000 or more, I don't see any reason why, why an account executive can't generate their own deals and close their own deals and just take a bigger commission. Certainly if you're selling something, that you know the consideration might be fifty to a hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, if I if I'm running sales, I'm going to take those account executives and say, "Listen, I've got a big pie, and I can split it between eighty people. Or I can split it between thirty people. You just which one do you want? You've got to work a little bit harder. But if presumably, if you're the best salesperson in the in the company, any lead that we give an SDR." you will convert into a demo at two to three times the rate of that SDR. Yeah. So why would you want to give that up unless, and even that, you know, I, I believe you because based on your resume and based on how much you have going on, I know that you're the type of person who is using up you know, every minute of their week. But let's think about this for a second. You know, if, if you're listening to this podcast right now, close your eyes and really think about your sales staff. Think about yourself. Are we really trying to convince people that you know your average uh, software account executive has forty hours of demos to do every week, <laughs> or that the deal you know they've got a deal desk for twenty hours with their VP, or they've got a no? It's 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 just not true. Yeah, they're, they're, it's simply not true. My guess is even at a relatively high uh, velocity, uh, let's say a mid market, you know, small business type of sale. Where you might be selling something that's you know five hundred to a thousand dollars a month, my guess is not even half of your time is spent doing demos, and the rest of the time could be spent on origination. And um, I, what I about think losing the deal though. What about after the demo? Well, at that point, it just depends on what kind of company you're running. If, you, if you've got you know if, if your job is to get it closed and then pass it over to somebody who gets it onboarded and integrated, then there shouldn't be that much more work to do after the close, as long as you've done a proper handoff and you've done proper discovery during the call. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, this, this somebody may be listening and saying, well, that's just not true. I have a nine month sales cycle and my sales are $5 million. Well, yeah, I, I understand that. <laughs> that's but not we're not trying to, yeah, but we're not trying to rule by exception here. That that's, that's different. You know, yeah. certainly, um, you know, look at the commercial real estate market. I think it makes perfect sense the way that you have, you know, teams of three or four people, you know, the bottom person on the totem pole is renting out, you know, 12, 15 class D spaces a month, small deal, small deal, small deal, but they're profitable. And, and they're basically paying for the, the capital for everyone else to go whale hunting. That makes a ton of sense, right? But most sales companies are really overthinking what they can expect um, for their sales reps to do. Or their process is just really convoluted. I mean, at some point, you're going to make the sale and you're going to pass it off to whether it's sales operations or some sort of integration team, your client's integration team, and you're going to do check-ins. But unless you're the world's greatest salesperson, you have hundreds of clients. My guess is um, 
you don't need to spend that much time on the integration. And if you do, you need to get with your head of sales and say, you know, we need to work this out because, you know, we shouldn't be spending uh, hours on end after a sale to, to make sure this person gets integrated unless there's an integration team to do it. Yeah. Okay. So you said something about the handoff. Um, and now handoff from sales to integration teams is different, but let's talk about how to, if you do have an SDR, what are some ways, uh, you, some unique ways that you've seen uh, on, in the handoff process that has, has worked well? Uh, just pure honesty. Just be completely candid. Uh, if, well, I'll tell you one thing that I, I find uh, in, like aggravating, if not infuriating, is when an SDR does the job and it isn't even on the call. Like, why would we do that? Why wouldn't you have the SDR on the call? At the very least, to introduce themselves and to put a face, to, you know, a face to the name. But why isn't an SDR listening to the to that demo and learning how to sell? If that's really you know what they can't do, that SDR should simply should be on the demo and observe. But I like honesty. I like when an SDR says, "Listen, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I am still being trained." in the full stack of our product. And in the interest of respecting your time, I've asked one of my more senior colleagues to walk you through the demonstration because she is going to be able to ask, answer a lot of your questions uh, more quickly than me. I'm going to stay on the call because this is part of my training. Um, and by the way, I have fully involved, uh, informed so-and-so of all the discovery you and I have done so far over phone or email. And so we can get right into it. Great. That's, that's, that's perfect. I don't know why we all have to puff our chests up. Just say, <laughs> listen, I'm not qualified to talk about this. Cool. But you should yeah. stay on the call. Um, but, you know, to all the SDRs out there, if you're going to be an SDR and you're going to pass these off to account executives, please, please make sure that that account executive has sat down with you and has been debriefed on exactly what you've already learned. I'm telling you, nobody wants to, to go through this process and start out by saying, you know, this is my AE or my manager. And that person says, great. You know, they, they rattle off their resume as, as if, <laughs> as if we care. Right. And then they say, great. Now let me learn a little bit more about you. And you're like, you gotta be kidding me, man. I've given you a half an hour and, I've got to spend the first seven minutes re-educating you. It's, it's, it's a bad use of everybody's time. And totally. honestly, yeah. And, and honestly, I, it's like, why do we want, um, like the most pejorative, uh, analogy in the sales is like the used car salesman. Right. And, which is probably unfair to them, but we all know what that is. You go in, they try to spin you around in a circle. They take you to a deal desk and then they walk out and they bring in their manager. And you're thinking, what is this guy doing here? <laughs> yeah. Like, they're, 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 <laughs> I don't know this guy. <laughs> yeah. But what, like, or is this person not empowered? It's just some big, you know, lame trick sales process. Yeah. But when you do that and you say, Hey, listen, not only is there an AE, but our, our VP of sales wants to introduce himself. Why? Why? I mean, that's the worst. And I'm a VP of sales. <laughs> but when I'm on, one of the questions I wanted to ask you. <laughs> oh, but when I'm, on a, when I'm on a call and we're doing a demo and I'm asking a lot of questions and someone comes in and goes, hey, I just wanted to join in. I'm Bob. And they start rattling off how special they are. He's like, dude, what are you doing, Bob? I mean, no one needs to hear about how great you are. I'm, I'm in the middle of learning about your product. Yeah. Like, butt out. <laughs> So I, I actually just I saw uh, you posted a few weeks ago uh, about sales leaders not getting involved in the sales cycle itself. Uh, right. As far as when it comes to clients, I couldn't agree with you more unless it's really necessary. But yeah, wh why do you feel this is so important? Because first of all, there's there is no point to it. It's thoughtless. If if most of the sales VPs admit it, they are there to hear themselves speak. They are there to look important. And there's no value to that. Um, if there is a specific reason to do it, well, then of course do it, right? So it could be completely appropriate for a sales VP um, to shoot an email or a LinkedIn message over to a prospect and say, you know, 
hey, Adam, this is Mark. I understand you spoke with so-and-so today. I've always been very proud of how they service our customers. Um, I'm not going to interject myself in the process, but um, you can always feel free to reach out to me uh, if, you know, if, if you have any questions. That's completely appropriate. Mm-hmm. That's fine. But you don't need to interject yourself into, into a demo it, unless for some reason you haven't empowered your people to be able to handle those things on their own. And if you haven't, then well, then shame on you. Yeah. Now, similarly to what I said earlier, if an account executive says, hey, listen, I need some help. I'm in training. Well, geez, if you're a sales VP and you're not okay with um, you know, listening to a demo by someone in training who's going to be getting some help, well, there's like a special place in hell for you. So if someone says, <laughs> you know, my VP is on the phone because I'm still in training and we want to make sure that you have the best possible service. Well, not only am I okay with that, it's actually, geez, well, maybe you should use that, but it's disarming. You know, it's like, okay, you're setting an expectation that you care greatly about my time and you care greatly about me getting my answers, but you're, you're almost um, forcing me to become you know, sort of more humble and more nice. And that, that, that leaves the relationship in a, in a really good position. Um, what prospects don't like is interruptions. They don't like wastes of their time. They don't like extra voices for the sake of it. Um, and they don't want to be bandied around when, when they know good and well that it's not the way it has to be. Um, you know, remember your audience. If you're, if you're selling sales enablement tools and you're talking to a senior sales leader, they know all your tricks. I don't know who you think you're fooling. Just get to it. If you're talking to a residential customer and you feel like you have to do all that stuff, you know, you know, God bless you. But even that's yeah. unnecessary. All these tricks that you hear about in the movies and stuff, it's all rubbish. <laughs> yeah. It really is. One of the things that you said, uh, when I first started out in sales, I always used to take my notepad and with all my notes for big sales and everything. And if it was a face-to-face or video like this, uh, I would have my notes and I would say, look, what I have to say is so important. I don't want to miss anything. That's why I have my notes. And then that like kind of like takes it away. Like then it's okay to be there. Just like it's okay to bring your VP sales. Like, look, I'm, I'm new. I'm learning. And I want to make sure all your an- questions are answered. It's not only appropriate. It's actually a fantastic. I don't like to use the word tactic because I, it's not that I'm intending to mislead anybody. But one of the things I always tell inside salespeople is that, yes, you're over the phone. But you want to... You want to paint a picture of who you are to that customer. You don't want them to think um, that you're in your underwear in your mom's basement, just (laughs) making calls from your cell phone. You certainly want to project a a confidence and a competency. You also want them to understand that you are thorough and you are listening. So one of the tactics that I always use and that I teach is the I'm just taking notes approach which is you set the expectation at the beginning of the call. You say, Adam, just like you said it perfectly, your time is very important to me. My intention is to answer all of your questions on this call and to do such and such. I am going to be taking thorough notes. So there's going to be some times that I, that I just have to stop and take some notes. Is that okay? No one says no. <laughs> Yeah. And so what you do during the, the call, when you need for the velocity of the call to slow down a little bit, you feel like um, the, the prospect has taken things in an, uh, an unuseful direction. Uh, it may be important to them, but it's not necessarily useful. Uh, and that's for you and for the prospect. You can say, Awesome. You know, I'm just taking some notes and it, it helps to pause the conversation. And then when you come back from that pause, first of all, you should be taking notes. Like <laughs> it's not a lie. You should actually be taking thorough notes. <laughs> but when you come back from that pause, it gives you a re-entry point to either address those questions, explain the answer to their questions, or to take them to someplace that's more useful. And when I say useful, you shouldn't be selling anything that you don't believe in. If you are, you need to stop doing that. 
The reason for that is when you are in sales, you need to truly believe that every sale you make is valuable to that customer. And you, you need to believe that when that customer makes the decision to purchase your product, that customer is better off. Conversely, you need to believe that when that customer makes the decision not to purchase, they are not better off. And so when I say just because something's interesting to a customer doesn't mean it is useful, I don't mean to be disrespectful. All I mean is to say there are sometimes our prospects are going to want to ask questions that are not as relevant as they think they are or don't help them truly better understand your product or your service. But you can't just say, that was a dumb question or that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Yeah. So what you do is you say, you know what, let me, uh, I want to take some thorough notes here. Um, You maybe clarify their question. I'm going to take some more notes. And then after that pause, you can address that and redirect. But giving that pause of the paper and pen notes is is a really great tactic to keep that um, you know that positive control over the velocity of the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. The, this is also something I learned in public speaking, uh, which is also goes for face to face meetings with clients. Is have a glass of water, a, a mm-hmm. lot of water, and every time you get lost in your conversation or you need to slow things down, take a nice long sip. Nobody will ever say anything because you're drinking water. <laughs> it's true. And, and similarly, when you begin a presentation, you know, my tactic is I'm going to walk on the stage and I'm going to put my head down until I'm ready to face my audience. And then I'm going to look up and with just a nice smile on my face, not a creepy smile, just a, <laughs> a nice, pleasant smile. I'm going to look at my audience and I'm going to look in the eyes of four different people without saying anything. At this point, the room becomes com- completely quiet. And then you're going to begin to speak in a quiet voice that, you know, that gets higher in the first 10 or 10 or 12 seconds. At that point, you have your audience and it's up to you to keep your audience. It's the same thing over the phone or in person. Talking louder and talking faster is actually counterproductive to having people listen to you. If you want to be a better communicator, typically it means talking slower and it means pausing more and it means more being more comfortable with silence because you'll really be able to gauge the earnestness of, of your customer and whether or not they're actually understanding that which you need them to understand. And if you guys are, you know, the whole model, you know, whatever, uh, mirror your customer's personality. That's, I don't know who taught that, but it's, it's just not true. If, if somebody from Brooklyn is talking a mile a minute, that doesn't mean you should talk a mile a minute. You should slow down and you should keep a consistent pace. And, um, as you know, as you've noted, there are, there are ways to maintain that pace, such as taking notes, taking a sip of water, Asking if you can put it on mute quickly to clear your throat, whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, so, interesting. All right, I want to kind of uh, change change direction a little bit and talk about uh, being a leader and being a good leader. Sure. Uh, so, first of all, you said that you had about forty reps and thirty uh, SDRs when you first joined Wampley. Is that correct? Uh, it was something like forty and fifty. Uh, something, something like okay. that. Okay. Yeah. So. How does a leader come in when there's already an existing team and get started on the right foot? Because that's a, that's a difficult situation to be in. It is. Um, not as difficult. I mean, it's, it's actually not that hard if you do it the right way, but it can be super challenging. Um, you know, I've entered in to companies that are very well run and uh, they're just looking to take it sort of to the next step. I've uh, joined companies where they're profitable, but they're not very well run. And so you actually have to make quite a few changes. But the first thing to do is always look for what is good and what is right about what they're currently doing. Nobody wants to be told that they're an idiot. Um, 
you know, not to, not to bag on consultants, but let me bag on consultants for a second. A lot of us have, have had, have talked to consultants and we know that, you know, these people are going to come in, they're going to charge a large hourly rate and they can only justify that hourly rate by telling the company how bad everything is. If they come in and say, everything's going great, well, then they lose their consulting fee. <laughs> um, so there's a distrust that gets put up. Similarly, if you are the, the new head of sales or new head of operations, and the first thing you do on the first day is say, you know what, I mystery shopped you and your sales process sucks and I'm going to change a bunch of things. Uh, you're going to lose your audience immediately. I mean, you better have a serious mandate or you're going to lose your audience. You also have to have quite a bit of hubris to think that uh, nothing that they do is proper. So if you take Wampley, Wampley has we have a phenomenal way of generating leads. We had exceptional contact rates and we had good conversion rates. Um, I had a phenomenal sales director to work with. And a lot of really great people. What I was able to see just through observing for, you know, first two to three, four weeks is that the company had phenomenal bones and just needed to sort of clean up its act on some of the processes and some of the ways that we delivered our value message to our customers. Um, but that's the first thing is make sure that they understand that you're there to help. You're there to observe, take copious notes, ask great questions, truly listen, truly make sure that you understand what they're already doing. Make sure you've asked that sales leader, you know, is, is there a list of things that you want to do that you haven't been able to do? By the way, most of them will say, oh yeah, here's three or four things. Yeah. <clears throat> and you can give them a quick win by helping. So I'll, t I'll tell you, you know, a, a quick anecdote. I, I ran a Incredibly high-performing sales organization uh, at a wonderful company, and they did bring in some consultants for you know just look at a couple of things. And it was my turn to go meet with a consultant, and I walked in, and I think I was maybe on edge that day. <laughs> and I said, "Hey, I said, hey, it's it's nice to meet you, but let's just cut to the chase. You are going to say that there's everything wrong. Um, so why don't I just concede that there's lots of things that I'd like to fix, and why don't I just give you the list of all the things?" that I already want to fix. And I said, and by the way, uh, before you do that, acknowledge that um, we break sales records literally every month. And so any improvements are meant to break the records by even more. It isn't as if this company isn't wildly successful. And, uh, you know, conversion had skyrocketed at that point. And so he kind of just put his pen down and said, Sure. I mean, let me see it. So I just <laughs> shot him over an email and he said, okay, so which ones can I help you with? And I said, you know, items two, four, and six are the, the ones that are most important to me. And this guy was I mean, the best consultant I ever worked with. He said, you know what? I don't need to talk to you anymore. I'll, I'll just help you get these things done. And so we, we came up with a plan together on how he as a consultant, you know, would bring that extra bravado and that extra credibility to the ask. And we got those things done. And, um, that consultant ended up becoming a full-time employee. And, <laughs> but, but that was the exact right way to do it, which was to say, okay, I have a high performing sales leader here who acknowledges that things could get better, who has a list of what they'd like to do. Let's just start there. If the list is super stupid, well, then we go back to the drawing board. But it's not likely that a high-performing sales rep is luckily good. You know, you don't go in and just start messing with your top people. You don't go in and start messing with sales processes unless you think that there is a specific reason to do so. Um, and, you know, first thing is you should, you should understand the data. But you just need to listen to calls. You need to familiarize yourself with the product. And then you can help make changes. Um, and when you do, by the way, when you say, listen, I'm going to have an all-hands meeting. I've observed for four weeks. I've seen the following amazing things. I've seen the following things that I'd like to change. I've gotten buy-in from your sales leaders that they also agree. And I have spoken with XYZ reps uh, who also agree. 
Um, it is time for us to start making some changes. I'm going to explain why. I'm going to explain how we do it. Then honestly, people get on board because no one's stupid. Everybody knows at every company what needs to be changed. It's typically an issue where they just don't want to believe it or they uh, can't resource the execution. But you know, most of the time, companies deep down inside know exactly what's going well and what isn't going well. Absolutely. Uh, and I think something that you just said, uh, I think is something that's really important for the sales leaders out there to, to take note of is when you had that list of things that you wanted to change and, and why is to bring that to the team and explain things with them and involve them. Uh, so many leaders will just come in and say, Hey, we're doing this. We're doing this. Thank you. Bye. Uh, and that people want to be involved. People want to understand why people want to put their input in. Even if you don't listen to it, they want to feel that you're you're there and, and not just feel it, it should be there, but they want to understand that you're there with them and to help them. Exactly. And there is, you know, there's a delicate art form to rebuffing someone's ideas. I mean, there are going to be people who come to you and they've got really bad ideas. Um, so you have to be super careful to make sure that they feel heard and that they feel like um, you've taken their ideas seriously. Now, I've never, I mean, I can't think of a time where somebody has brought to me an idea that is completely without merit. Um, most often, somebody brings an idea that is wholly unworkable on its own. But if you are open-minded, you can typically riff off of that and say, you know what? Your solution doesn't work for these reasons. But as we've discussed this, I think there's another way we can modify it to where it could be incredibly helpful. You know, would you like to be a part of that solution? And people get really excited. And some, by the way, some people say, no, <laughs> you don't want to be. Okay, you don't have to be. Yeah. Um, but you do, and then you just have to prioritize. I mean, that's the other thing is you may have six or seven things that you want to change. Sometimes you just have to have the discipline to say, guys, we have the ability to execute on two changes this quarter. These are the ones we've chosen. These are the reasons we've chosen it. The next five will not be done. I hate to say it, but they will not be done. Do not expect this to change. As long as you've been clear with them, they typically are, are fine with hearing that truth. Yeah. Great. Well, Mark, this has been a great conversation. And I, I mean, there's so much that we covered and so much that we could continue to cover. I have one more well, Sorry if I took this all over the place. <laughs> no, it's good. It was, it was a think, good conversation. Hopefully it was useful, though. <laughs> absolutely. Um, I've got one more question before we, we, we sign off here. Sure. What is something that you wish uh, salespeople asked of you or sales leaders asked of you? Asked of me? Or asked you. I shouldn't say asked of you. Asked you. Something I wish they asked me. Yeah, or people like what kind of advice do you want to give that most people aren't asking for? You know, I'll make this one a little bit selfish, but um, mm -hmm. a lot of times the sales leader is the loneliest person at the company. And, you know, our responsibility is to take care of others and always make sure that their lives are improving. But it can be very lonely in that, you know, you don't have a lot of people asking how, how you're doing. Now, not, not to say that I'm in my office crying or anything, but. A lot of times, if you want to endear yourself to a sales leader, and you know it could be because you want to get a promotion, it could be a, a number you want to learn. Sometimes it's it's good to take that person aside and say, "Hey, listen, you know we we usually talk about my problems. What's it like to be in your shoes? What's it like to you know you obviously want to help us out. You obviously want to be a good leader, but you know it seems like you get hamstrung sometimes or." Seems like that, you know, there's more you want to do. What, what is that like? And I think that those sales leaders will open up to you. And in doing so, will endear you to them as just somebody that they can, you know, trust as a confidant. But also, you can get to see into the mindset of what sales leaders struggle with. We all want our people to make more money. We all want conversion to be higher. We all want to retain our people. We want all of it. You know, we, we care deeply. But Sometimes it's important just to figure out, um, you know, what is it like in the life of a sales leader? Uh, what is it going to be like when you become a sales leader? And the, the more you understand, you know, from the top down, how decisions are made, 
um, how, you know, how that person is affected by making those decisions. I think you can have a lot better communication all the way throughout the organization, uh, you know, that benefits everybody. Wow. Really, uh, really deep and insightful. Mark, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to your, your LinkedIn so people could reach out to you. Cool. Um, but again, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. To contact Adam about consulting services or speaking engagements, visit StartupSalesPodcast.com or email StartupSalesPodcast at gmail.com. All right, Mark, let's finish things off with the final five. Oh, I thought I was going to escape that. <laughs> no, I don't forget. Dang, I, thought you, I thought you forgot. <laughs> All right, go for it. What is your favorite sales or leadership book? Um, I would say, uh, gosh, that's a good question. Uh, team of rivals. Team of rivals. It's been the yep. second time it's been uh, mentioned on the show. Yeah. Do you have someone that you follow or read for sales and leadership advice? Yeah, I like to read Rob Jepson, Noah, Noah Goldman, um, Mark Bodner, a few others. Okay. Uh, I know the answer to this because I've been following you, uh, but are you available 24-7 or do you have strict uh, personal time boundaries? I have personal time boundaries. Um, I, I, I definitely have time where it's my family, my family only. There are ways to reach me if there's an emergency. Um, but as we all have to admit, if we're really honest with ourselves, there's almost no emergencies yeah. in, in our world, at least. Yeah, absolutely. Great. What is your favorite tool used for sales? The phone. <laughs> pick, Very- pick it up and start using it. It makes you money. <laughs> there you go. Last question. What one piece of advice do you have for all the founders, uh, CEOs, and sales leaders out there? Uh, 15 minutes with a customer is worth 15 weeks on a whiteboard. You need to go talk to actual people. Um, you are way too excited about your product and service. You are way too blinded to how amazing it is. It's not to say that I'm trying to, to rip on your product or service, but before you jump in and invest tons of time and money and other people's time, go talk to some people and get some unvarnished advice about uh, whether or not they want your product or service, how you might position it. It will save you like untold amount of time and grief and capital to go speak with your customers before you go down a long you know, development road or business model roads. Excellent. Spend some time with clients. Mark. Yes. Thanks again so much for your time. Thanks for having me.